0: Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Good. Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. In case you're a guest, just so you know what we're doing, uh, last week uh, last week we began a series called Two Ways to Live, uh, in which we are looking at what's referred to in Scripture as the fruit of the Spirit. And we started the study off by uh, talking uh, about the importance of spiritual self-assessment, you know, personal Evaluation. And um, I noted how in his book, Renaissance, Christian author and thinker Oz Guinness points out that as Christians, he says, all too often we have set out high, clear statements of the authority of the Bible, but flout them with lives and lifestyles shaped more by our own sinful preferences and by modern fashions and convenience. He says, all too often we have attacked the evils and injustices of others while we have condoned our own sins turned a blind eye to our own vices, and lived captive to materialism and consumerism in ways that contradict our faith. Those are some hard uh, words to hear, but I think they're true. And so Guinness calls us in the church to self, honest uh, self-assessment, self-examination. And recognizing the importance of that is nothing new Uh, in the ancient world, Aristotle said, We are what we repeatedly do. Uh, Socrates asserted, The unexamined life is not worth living. I wouldn't quite go that far, but I would agree that honest self reflection, self examination, whatever you want to call it, is important to living life well and is a key component of Christian growth and discipleship. I was reading an article recently about how we live in the age of the selfie. And I'm guessing most of us know what a selfie is, right? There may be some of us who don't. Uh, A selfie is a self-portrait photograph typically taken with a camera phone, uh, held at a distance in your hand, uh, or supported by a selfie stick, and then you snap the picture, right? And most of us have probably done this. We've probably taken one or two over time, yeah? I have. Uh, Here are a couple recent ones. Uh, recent ones. Here I am outside my house getting ready for a walk, proving to my wife that I do get out and walk periodically. Uh, Here I am this spring in Washington, D.C., just outside the Capitol building. I am trying for the uh, Secret Service look. I'm going for that. Uh, Here I am uh, on a boat racing across uh, a a lake in southern Alabama, getting ready to catch some fish. Uh, Here I am uh, sporting my, uh, uh, what are those things called? yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Lucha Libre mask, which is not really helping me any, uh, and it's not very comfortable. And then uh, here's one where Margie and I, we're at, we're at a Sox game, Margie and I, and uh, you, you can see Margie's hair right there. She didn't <laughs> quite make the picture. I'm not really good at taking selfies, uh, but she's in there. She's in there. So uh, we all take them, right? Um, here's my point. Millions and millions of people take selfies every day, with many of those photos shared across major social media platforms. According to Samsung, uh, selfies make up one-third of photographs taken by people with Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat bearing the brunt of the load. In fact, selfies uh, are such a phenomenon these days, researchers at the University of Georgia are studying the psychology behind them. And uh, fortunately, so far, the results suggest that while taking a selfie every now and then doesn't necessarily mean we're vainly obsessed, uh, but um, it it means that we we just like to look at ourselves. And uh, I suppose that's okay. But here's my contention. While we like to look at ourselves on sort of a superficial selfie level, if you will, uh, we shy away from looking at ourselves on a deeper, more personal and spiritual level. Yeah? Uh, We tend to avoid... Examining our lives, honestly examining our lives, you know, our attitudes, our behaviors, our, our words, all of which reveal who we really are. You know, last week we heard Jesus say to his followers, he said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored. Uh, up in his heart. Here's my, here's my summary of that. Just as over time uh, good trees produce good fruit, so over times our lives reveal who we really are, good or bad, godly or evil, followers or phonies, Christians or not. And uh, while Jesus um, introduces the fruit metaphor, later in the New Testament the Apostle Paul picks up and elaborates on it. Uh, in fact, in the letter to uh, the church uh, he, the early church, he explains that you know, if and when we experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus, that the Spirit of God uh, comes into our lives and starts to trans, uh, transform us from the inside out, you know, moving us from where we're not gratifying the desires of our rebellious human nature, but living a very different type of existence, one led by the Spirit of God himself. How do we know if that transformation is taking place? Well, just like Jesus, Paul says there's evidence. There's tangible, experiential, observable evidence. He writes this, he says, you know, the acts of the sinful nature are very obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And we ran down through that list last week talking a little bit about what each of those mean. Well, we all agreed it's not, not a list that's particularly nice, right? Not, 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 not nice attitudes or behaviors. That I mean, no one wants to be known for those kind of things. No one wants to be around people who are like that. No one. I mean, down inside, we all know. We all sense that these things are wrong. They're hurtful. They're hurtful. They're unhealthy. That's Paul says, well, here's the alternative because the contrast between what our, sinful, our sin nature produces and what the Spirit of God produces is this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you know, there's something, something about this second list that, that really resonates with us, you know, uh, our humanness says these things are right, they're healthy, they're, they're beneficial. This is the kind of, of men and women we're, we're meant to be. I mean, across the board, Christian and non-Christian alike agree. Not only do we respect these virtues, we desire them in ourselves and in others. And yet, if left to our own nature, our own sin nature, that first list will dominate our lives. And the only way to live out the second, become the people we know we're meant to be, is by the grace and power of God's Spirit, who indwells us when we place our faith in Jesus. And just so there's no confusion on this, understand, you don't, you don't work hard to change your, your attitudes and behaviors in order to become a Christian. No. Your attitudes and behaviors change because you are a Christian. You see the difference? You know, we come to Jesus broken, messed up people. We just don't stay that way because Jesus changes things. The grace of God changes things. The spirit of God changes things. He changes us. So, with that said, let's talk about this evidence of God's spirit in our lives and the various aspects to it. Paul explains it to his listeners in terms of fruit, uh, uh, because he uses the same metaphor that Jesus used. Because, you know, people in the ancient Near East were agriculturally savvy. know, most everyone was familiar with farming and the things that are associated with it, planting, harvesting, crop production. It was a simple, easily understood metaphor, which I think is still true today for most of us. I remember, you know, even when I was a little kid growing up in North Jersey... Um, We had three peach trees and a cherry tree in our backyard. It was weird. But we had them, and uh, in the summer, I remember getting really excited when the fruit started to, to appear, and I wouldn't have articulated it this way back then, but it proved to me the trees were alive. You know, fruit is the external evidence of inner life, and... And it grows above ground where everybody can see it. It's something, fruit is something most people understand. And so when it comes to the metaphor, Jesus used it, Paul liked it, the culture understood it. And so he writes, the fruit of the spirit. Now, fruit is one of those weird English words. It's considered an uncountable noun, meaning that fruit can refer to one thing or to many things. But that is not true uh, of the Greek term that's used. The Greek term for fruit is singular, meaning that all the attending virtues are produced by the Spirit's presence and power in our lives. It's not just, not just one or two. It's all of these things together. They're growing, they're manifesting themselves in increasing degrees. And so Paul begins, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I don't, I don't know for you, it makes sense to me that love, uh, um, he mentions love first, because love really sets the foundation for and kind of envelops uh, all the others. You know what I mean? And not only that, at the time of this writing, the Galatian church, uh, who Paul was specifically writing to, was not a particularly loving environment because of some false teachers who had come around. Religious legalism had seeped into the Christian community, creating vicious social and racial divisions. You know, uh, Gentile believers and, and Jewish believers were at each other all the time, and what you know, there was all this friction and hard feelings and conflict and. And what started out as a unified community of grace was ending up anything but that. In fact, a few verses earlier in chapter 5, Paul tells his listeners, he says, look, you've got to stop biting and devouring each other. You're fighting like animals. You're going to destroy one another. He says, don't indulge your sin nature by behaving that way. Instead, serve one another in love. Love your neighbor as yourself, Paul says. And the term he uses for love in verse 14 is the same one he uses when describing fruit of the Spirit. It's not just warm, fuzzy sentimentality. The Greek term is agape. It refers to willful, unconditional action taken on behalf of and for the benefit of another. It's not something that's earned. Uh, There's no prerequisite. It's not based on our neighbor, who our neighbor is, who our neighbor isn't. It's not calculated on potential payback that we might receive, uh, which is hard for us to kind of grasp You know, living in a consumer-driven, a give-to-get society. But Paul says, he says, look, we love our neighbors, we love others unconditionally because God loves that way and because he's loved all of us that way. And when the Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives, uh, it's this kind of godly, gracious, deliberate, unconditional love toward others that begins to grow and get revealed through our actions. I.e., this is fruit other people see and experience. Again, it's the same thing that Jesus taught, same words, same phrases, same metaphors. You know, Jesus said, by your fruit you'll be known. He said, as I have loved you, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul is simply reiterating Jesus' teaching. But here's the challenge for us. The challenge for us, I think, is that love love is a word that we use all the time. We use it all the time in different ways, applying it to a lot of different things. And so, and so, when love is identified as fruit of the spirit, or as fruit the Spirit of God produces in our lives, what does that really mean, in practical terms? Well, one day, when discussing this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, Jesus shared a parable that depicts what this kind of willful, gracious, unconditional love looks like. And the story is known as the story of the Good Samaritan. And many of you are probably familiar with it, but let me give you my Reiki abbreviated version. Okay, Jesus tells the story of a man, a Jewish man, traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a 12-mile, to 8-10-hour walk downhill through an isolated area of the Judean wilderness down to the lowest point on earth, 1,400 feet below sea level. Right near the Dead Sea, the man was traveling alone, uh, and he ends up—he ends up getting mugged along the way. Some robbers, robbers, robbers—they jump him, they beat him, they take his stuff, his clothes, leaving him naked and half dead. And the man was lying there on the road, unconscious, dying. Jesus says, a priest walks by. Priests were the religious professionals, you know, they did all, they did the sacrifices and the prayers in the temple, they did all the important religious stuff, and he comes by and the priest sees this man dying on the road, he decides, you know, he doesn't really have time to stop and help, he had way too many other vital religious duties to perform, and so he passes by, and leaves the guy there. Then Jesus said a Levite comes by. And the Levites were sort of the non-professional temple workers, the lay ministers, if you will, the volunteers. And Jesus says the Levite, he sees the man, he passes by as well. We don't know exactly why. Maybe he was afraid that if he stopped, he'd get robbed and maybe be left for dead just like this guy. So he decides it was just too risky, too risky to stop and help, and he passes the man by. By the way, as you're trying to to imagine the road to Jericho, uh, realize we're not talking about a four-lane highway here. This wasn't much more than a footpath. I mean, here's a picture of, um, of that road today, remains of the Roman road from the first century. It wasn't very big. Maybe enough room for a cart and a, and, a, and a donkey, maybe. So keep that in mind. I mean, these supposedly, you know, godly individuals, the professional religious guy, the lay minister, they would have come extremely close to the dying man. I mean, there'd be no really getting a, getting getting away from him, he would be right there. So they came within a few feet so close they would have known he was still alive, which makes their decision to ignore him even more sad and disappointing. Here are two people who claim to understand the idea of loving God, loving your neighbor, and yet clearly had no idea what that meant. And so after both religious guys walk by the dying man, Jesus says, a Samaritan shows up. Now we've talked about this before, but the Samaritans and the Jewish people at the time hated each other. I mean, they just, hate, they just hated each other. They were enemies because centuries earlier, uh, many Israelites living in the region of Samaria intermarried with Assyrians. And so as far as other Jewish people were concerned, these folks were half-breed pagans. They wanted nothing to do with them. And there was all this animosity between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. It ran, the animosity ran long. It ran deep. There was ethnic division. There was religious division. There was cultural divisions. And yet Jesus says... Unlike the priest and the Levite who refused to help a fellow Jewish man, the Samaritan comes by and he stops. And he takes pity on the man. And the Greek term for pity literally means to have feelings in your bowels, your innermost parts. Sounds gross, but that's what it means. And it carries the idea of seeing someone in need, someone hurting, someone suffering, and you get this deep gut level uh, feeling of sympathy. And the feelings are so intense they inspire action. In other words, the Samaritan doesn't just look at this dying man and said, Man, oh, that poor slob, he got racked. Look at him, he got racked. I feel bad about it, but oh well, I gotta go. No. The Samaritan has compassion, and we know it's genuine because he takes action. According to Jesus, the Samaritan sees the man, he stops, uses wine, his wine to clean the guy's wounds uses oil to soothe him. He bandages the guy up, probably with strips of his own clothing. It wasn't like he's carrying around, you know, gauze pads or anything, you know. Uh, So he, you know, uses his own clothes to bandage the guy up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to the nearest inn, and he doesn't just dump him off. Jesus said the Samaritan stays overnight caring for the man. The next day he gets up and he says to the innkeeper, he pays him, he says, look, uh, look, take care of my friend here. Uh, here's the money. When I return, I'll reimburse you any, uh, for any added and extra expenses. Uh, think about that for a second. Think about what the Samaritan does, all that he does. Think of the risks, how he sacrifices for this dying stranger, how he mercifully gives his time and attention, um, unconcerned about his own safety. He surrenders his valuable stuff, his wine, his oil, his clothes, his transportation, his money, all to help. He rearranges his schedule to ensure the man's care. He takes him to, you know, the days inn nearby and he stays there with him. He, he leaves the next morning, but he gives cash to cover expenses and commits to come and pay any remaining debt. And the Samaritan did this for who? A Jew. A no-name, insignificant stranger slash enemy, who was heading down to the deepest part of the earth, facing death as a result. It's no wonder history labels the Samaritan good. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus ends the parable with a question. He asks his listeners, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, i.e., you know, who proved to be a true neighbor? And everyone who was listening had to admit. They said the true neighbor, you know, wasn't those who looked all pious and talked good religion. It was the one who stopped and did something who actually took action, who had mercy on this man who was dying. And Jesus says, exactly. Now go and do likewise. You know, as I thought about the story this week and how it relates to this whole idea of loving others, I mean, I don't know about, don't know about you, but for me the story re- reveals a couple of key things. First, it shows me who my neighbor is. You know what I mean? From, from what Jesus says, my neighbor, your neighbor, isn't determined by religious, educational, socioeconomic, ethnic, racial, or geographical considerations. Apparently, our neighbor, as far as God is concerned, is anyone whose need we see and are in, are in a position to meet. And, and, and look, um, let's be honest. Our, our, our tendency is to want to limit that definition. We want to limit the definition, or we want to find excuses like the priest and the Levite You know, we're too busy, we're too afraid, this is an enemy, it's a stranger, I don't know them. We want to find excuses as to why we can't help and that way we justify ourselves when we choose not to take action. In fact, uh, in fact, the priest and the Levite demonstrate um, the opposite of love. You know, I think it's arguable, uh, you can argue that they demonstrate the opposite of love. We often think of the opposite of love as hate, it's not. The opposite of love is indifference. It's indifference. The religious guys, they didn't care about the man who was dying. They didn't give a rip about this neighbor. So understand, with the story, Jesus not only defines who our neighbor is, but also what it means to be a good one, a good and true neighbor. And he does it very subtly. You know, he, he does it by taking the focus of, uh, off the object of neighborliness, the victim, and places the focus on the subject, the Samaritan, who made himself a neighbor. So according to Jesus, who's our neighbor? Anyone whose need we see and are in a position to meet. And I think it's safe to say that from God's perspective, the world, you know, is our neighborhood. Another thing Jesus does is provides, he provides a picture of what love is. Because here's a fascinating thing. The term love is never used in the story. Never used which is a brilliant way of effectively illustrating the fact that words are cheap and terms are a dime a dozen, right? I mean, and God's, this is, this is the thing, God's not really interested or impressed by what we say. It's easy to say all kinds of things, make all kinds of claims. I can say I love sardines, but if I never eat any, do I really love them? You know, I can say I love exercise, but if I never work out, how true is that? I can say I'm a, I'm a loving guy. I love God. I love God with all my heart, my soul, my strength, my mind, everything. But do my values, my beliefs, my behaviors demonstrate that? I can say, I love my neighbor, but if I never lift a finger or give a dime to help those who are wounded and dying and lost, who is fooling who? God's not naive, He's no rube. Our words mean nothing if not backed by action, and that's what love is. It's not just emotion. I mean, it's kind of part of it, but, but true love, real love, biblical love, is expressed through deliberate acts of commitment and sacrifice. Love means that we put our, our own desires aside and offer ourselves in the service of others, expecting absolutely nothing in return. The Samaritan did that. He loved unconditionally by coming to the aid of a stranger enemy. Love involved seeing, feeling, risking, acting, touching, sacrificing. He loved by giving time, by giving attention, by giving his money, by giving energy and effort. He loved by committing to help someone who couldn't help himself and couldn't even ask for help. And the great irony of the story is that the virtuous become the villains, right? The good guys end up the bad guys. The priest and the Levite were supposed to be the spiritual ones, The religious ones, the ones who claim to love God and love others. And that's how they saw themselves. I mean, they saw themselves and promoted themselves as righteous, lacking self-awareness. That's how they promoted themselves. Yet, for most of us who read or hear the story, those men immediately become the rogues. right? We forget about the robbers even. You know, what, 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 what robbers? You know, we forget about the robbers and we focus our anger and our frustration and our judgment on the two religious guys. You know why? I'll tell you why. It's because universally, universally the world despises selfish, hateful, greedy, indifferent, hypocritical people. Especially religious people. Those who say one thing but do another. And yet how often do many of us in the church do the same? Jesus said, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And the thing is, we've got the loving ourselves down, that part down pretty well, but how are we doing with the other? Self-examination, honestly, how are we doing with the other? See, Paul's point when writing Christians in the church was this. When we experience the grace and unconditional love of God through faith in Jesus, that same kind of grace and love is what the Spirit of God begins to produce in and through our lives. Love is not just feeling sorry for someone. It's serving. Love isn't just thinking about generosity. It's actually being generous. Love isn't just about acknowledging need. It's stepping into a situation to help meet the need. Love isn't isn't about contemplating sacrifice, it's about making sacrifice. Making one. Love is action. And it's fruit everyone can see. And uh, for me, you know, Jesus' story is very helpful in understanding that. In fact, let me just, since we're on the story, let me ask you this question. Who is the hero of that story? You ever think about that? I mean, who's the hero? Uh, who, who, who rescues the dying man? Who? Who's compassionate enough to give uh, him a second chance at life? Who descends humbly to his side and unconditionally pours out his resources for the man's benefit? Who shows up on the scene unexpectedly, makes a surprising sacrifice for one who couldn't save himself? Who pays the, the price for a dying individual who had absolutely nothing? Who loves and extends grace, giving someone what he didn't deserve or even ask for? Who was it? Well, it wasn't who you'd expect right? It wasn't the professional, the professional religious guy who was too pious and important. It wasn't the religious volunteer who was too busy or afraid. Now the hero of the story from the Jewish perspective was the outcast, the reject, the enemy, the least expected, the Samaritan. Through an incredible act of love he made it possible for someone who was as good as dead to wake up safe, secure, clean, Healed and at peace. And when he asks the innkeeper, how did I get here? Who saved me? The answer, you're never going to believe this. It's so unexpected. When he says, well, how much do I owe? The answer, nothing. Your debt is paid in full. And when he asks, where is my rescuer? The response, he's gone for now, but he's promised to return. And you tell me, who's the hero of the story? The answer is the good Samaritan, right? But who is the true good Samaritan? His name is Jesus. You see, there's a prophetic element to the parable. Jesus was offering a picture of God's love, grace, and redemptive plan to rescue dying people, with the point being that we cannot do it ourselves. Listen, whenever I read this parable... I realized that this, this story of a lonely traveler is in so many ways a story about me. The story about uh, a guy who was lost and suffered the consequences of foolish, sinful decisions. A guy who isn't perfect, never will be. A guy who for a very long time was going nowhere but down, guilty, shameful, messed up, broken, and as good as dead. Religion couldn't rescue me volunteerism couldn't save me and I certainly couldn't save myself the only hope I had uh, was for a rescuer to come and graciously give me a second chance at life to humbly descend to me and unconditionally pour out his resources for my benefit to make a sacrifice and pay the debt I owe to love me and give me what I do not deserve and cannot earn I needed the good Samaritan I needed Jesus I still do And here's the amazing thing, you know, if it isn't already, that can be your story. That story can be your story. And understand something, unconditional love and grace represent the fundamental difference between the gospel of Jesus and the religions of our world. Christianity's message radically differs from traditional religion. The founders of every other religion essentially came as teachers, not saviors. They came and said, hey, if you do this well enough, you can find the divine. Jesus came and said, I am the divine. I've come to find you and to deliberately and unconditionally love you and do what you cannot do for yourselves to graciously rescue you and give you life. That's what makes the good news so good, you see that we're saved not by our work, not by our effort, but what Christ has done. (coughs) Christianity, therefore, is not religion, it's not irreligion, it's something else altogether, something completely unexpected. And when we experience this grace and love of God through our faith in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit of work in our lives, this same kind of grace and unconditional love begins to more and more pour out and characterize our lives and our relationships. (coughs) We take action. Willfully and deliberately give of our time, our money, our resources, our efforts, we sacrifice for the benefit of others. For the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's pray together. Father, I, pr- I pray this morning that that you would give us the courage to do some self-examination. Because it's just easy to walk through life in denial. It's easy for us as as so-called Christians to walk very piously and talk a good religious game, say all, all the right words, use all the right cliches, but our lives are are far from genuine when it comes to love. We've so often, we've relegated love to just a, a squishy feeling, when in reality love is commitment, love is unconditional action we take for the benefit of another person, for someone who's lost, who has nothing, who's dying. I pray that you would help us break through the denial because our world, our world needs help. Our, ne- our world needs you and needs us to bring the news of you, not just through our words, but through our actions, through our love. And so I pray this morning that you give us the courage to be honest about who we are every single day because we can't hide from you. You know us, you know our thoughts. You know the good, the bad, the ugly. But I pray that you pour out your spirit on your people in such a, a, such a new and fresh way that we can't help but, but love. Thank you for descending to those of us who are dying to make a sacrifice for us, an unexpected sacrifice. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your great grace. Thank you for your great love. A love that heals and and saves and gives us a second chance at life. We worship you this morning as our great and loving God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, Sean. So here's the deal. Um, some of us are going to walk away today and say, man, that was some great teaching. Probably most of you will say that. Is that wrong? Is that wrong to say? Uh, but I'm, I'm being serious. Some of us are going to walk away and say, man, that was good. That was good stuff. That's true. But then we're just going to go on with our lives as if nothing has happened. And, and, and that's, that's a problem, you see, because Christianity... It's, it's not just rational, it's not just uh, academic, it's not just truth, it, it's also experience, right? Uh, the truth impacts how we behave, how we live, what we do. And uh, one without the, the other is, is, is less than legit, you know, if you have all the truth, but it's just head stuff, and it has, there's no change taking place, and it's just, it's just empty theology. Or if you have all this experience, you run around doing all these things, but you don't have truth, uh, that's just subjectivity. Christianity brings both of those things together, rational and experiential. And um, I, my fear is that for so many in the church today in America, we've got the rational part down, we got the truth, we can hammer that to death. But the experiential part, the living it out part is, is lacking. And so we, we need to take a look at ourselves, an honest do an honest self assessment, a spiritual self assessment. Stop worrying about everybody else, what this person's doing over there, and what that person's doing, and judging ourselves based on everybody else. Take a long, hard look at ourselves, because sometimes our, the sin that's most prevalent prevalent in our lives is the one we can't see or the one we refuse to see. So. Um, we need to do some self-assessment and maybe ask some people into that discussion. You know, what do you see in me? Am I a loving person? Am I really loving? Ask your spouse. Ask your boyfriend or girlfriend. Ask, ask a good friend that you trust. Ask people in your life group. Um, because unless we break through the denial, uh, our spiritual lives get stunted. You know what I mean? So uh, we're going to keep talking about this over the next couple of weeks. Next week, come back, we're going to talk about fruit of the Spirit being joy. And... Uh, um, what that's all about, but hopefully you're finding it helpful. And if you're here today and this whole idea of Christianity is something that's a little confusing to you, uh, maybe you grew up in a very, you know, maybe you grew up in no, no religious background or a religious background that was all about guilt, and so you've kind of written God off because of that, but somehow you found yourself here today and now you're hearing something different. Understand uh, the, the biblical message of Jesus, the, the, the message of Christianity is the grace and love of God that forgives our sins. It's not about what we do. It's about what he has done for us. And maybe you're at a place where you're ready to make a decision to be a follower of Jesus. Do that. Pray that prayer. Ask Jesus to forgive your sin and say you're committing to him. And then tell somebody you did it. Tell the friend who brought you. Tell a family member. Come down front. Tell one of our prayer team folks. They'll be down here. They can talk with you, pray with you, or whatever. But um, uh, I hope that you'll make that commitment. Let me know. Send me a note. Whatever. Okay? In the meantime, have a great week. And we'll see you back next Sunday. Let me pray for us. And we're dismissed. Our Father, we acknowledge this morning your greatness, your goodness, your love in our lives. A love that is tangible and experiential and observable. Love demonstrated in the sacrifice of Jesus for us, the true good Samaritan. And so today, Lord, we I, I pray that we would experience your love and grace in a new and refreshing way, in a real way as your spirit moves. And I pray that he would pour out the fruit of love in our lives this week toward people that we come in contact with. May we love them as you love them and in the process, point them to Jesus. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.